0: Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. Morrison Hill Road in Wan Chai is no longer a hill, but the road is named after Robert Morrison, a Scottish missionary who came to China in 1807. Author Mark O'Neill joins me this week to tell me about Morrison's impact on China and his controversial legacy. Apparently, Morrison Hill Road is not the only thing named after Robert Morrison.
1: Well, they should go to Macau because there is the Morrison Chapel, or they can go to Taiwan, there is Morrison schools. And he's the father of the Protestant Church of China, which now has who knows how many members? 25 million? 50 million? 75 million? So, he's a very significant person in the history of China.
0: Where was Robert Morrison born?
1: Well he's from an extremely humble background. He was born in 1782. He was one of eight children of a farm labourer in Scotland and the farm labourer went to Newcastle to find work and and, and started to make shoes. So as a young man Morrison helped his father to make shoes but his father was a religious person so he helped his son get education, so he was educated by ministers. And it was when he was 15 years old that the son, Robert, decided he should become a missionary. He was reading missionary magazines and he was very inspired by what they were doing. So he then went to missionary colleges in the south of England and was preparing to become a missionary. And initially he was going to go to Africa. That was what he was told. But only later he was told, no, you should go to China. And today we cannot comprehend the difficulty of what this would involve because at that time there were a very small number of Catholics in China. There were no Protestants at all. Christianity was banned in China. Nobody could speak Chinese. The foreigners had only the slightest toehold in China, you know, Macau, and Guangzhou. And yet, this young man, this son of a farm laborer from Scotland, had been told, your job now is to go and evangelize China. And the population of China then was 350 million, so it was double that of Europe, and it was the biggest country in the world that was not part of Christendom.
0: So the population was how big?
1: 350 million. So this young man, you know, not not yet 20, is informed (laughs) that... Its mission in life is to evangelize China. So
0: so how did that come about? Just going back to so he's born in 1782, uh, the son of a, a Scottish shoemaker. To have a son who would become a missionary, was that an honorable thing? Was there any money in it or not?
1: Oh, it was certainly no money. But yes, it was certainly an honorable thing. So his father, as I say, was a religious man, a devout Protestant. So indeed, he would encourage his son to become a minister and uh, to become a missionary. No, that would be a glorious thing, but certainly not for money.
0: So to go, where did he head off from in Britain in order to get to China?
1: Well, this is the first big problem because if you're a missionary, you see, no one will take you. The Chinese government bans you and the East Indian Company, which was the main uh, British trading company in China at that time, would not put missionaries on their ships because they knew how the Chinese government disliked them. So it took him from January to September to get from the UK to China.
0: In what year? So this
1: is 1807. So he left the UK, he went first to the United States, he went through the United States, then he took a boat from, from San Francisco and he arrives in Guangzhou. And Guangzhou is the only place that he can be because, as you know, at that time there was this very small area that the foreign companies were allowed to occupy. So that's where he lived.
0: Even that early, so when do you have the East India Company or the first British traders, when when do they first come to China?
1: Well, the Portuguese, of course, had been there already uh, 200 years. So the East India Company would have got there about 50 years before. But remember, they were only interested in trading and doing business. They weren't at all interested in, in, in missionaries and he wasn't welcome in Macau either because Macau of course was a Catholic place and the Catholic leaders in Hong Kong did not want anyone who would attempt to change the minds of the citizens of Macau.
0: So when Robert Morrison arrives in Guangzhou uh, towards the autumn of 1807, is he on his own?
1: Yeah, he's on his own, he's not married, he has a little bit of money which is provided by the missionary society that sent him But his two initial missions are to learn Chinese and to start evangelizing. Now, both are illegal in China. If you taught a foreigner Chinese, you could be executed. That was the rule at that time. Why was that? Well, the Chinese emperor regarded missionaries, Catholic and Protestant, as a direct threat to the regime because they weren't simply trading goods, exchanging things for money. They were trying to change the minds Of his subjects and he considered that Christianity was against Chinese custom belief and religion and was there therefore outlawed
0: so he's arrived in Guangzhou he's only about 20 years old and he's there to evangelize China so how does he set out with that task
1: well life is extremely difficult at the beginning Um, foreigners are very rare at that time in in Guangzhou and most of the, the business people are quite happy to stay in their restricted zone, do business, you know, and entertain each other in the evenings. But
0: So is that that island at the yes, time.
1: Sham shaman. But you see his mission is the opposite. His is not to evangelize the foreigners, it's to evangelize the Chinese. So he, he has to get close to Chinese people. So he walks around the streets and initially he wears Western clothes and crowds follow him and laugh at him and so then he's he, he starts to wear Chinese clothes to try to be less conspicuous. And he's got to learn Chinese. Well, as I say, it's illegal. It's illegal for anyone to teach it to him. So he does find some teachers, and they come to his house, and they always bring shoes with them. So that if a policeman or someone unexpected arrived and said, what, what are you doing here? They would say, well, I'm repairing the shoes of Mr. Morrison. So that's how he started off. It must have taken enormous devotion by him to learn Chinese in these circumstances.
0: Robert Morrison who founded the Protestant Church in China. Can you tell me this need for evangelization, you know, in terms of the Protestant Church, what was that about? Was that saving the souls of the Chinese?
1: Well, uh, it's written in the Bible that uh, you must preach the gospel to everyone on the earth. So, the churches in Europe considered that the European countries had already been evangelized because Christianity was the majority religion sometimes the state religion in the countries of Europe so therefore their mission was to take Christianity to people who had not heard it before so that means you've got to take it to Africa to Asia to China and China's the world's most populated country it's the most important country from a sort of religious point of view so the logic is then that you must send missionaries to china but it was <laughs> it was the good fortune or the bad fortune of mr morrison to be the first one so his difficulties were far greater than those that followed him
0: yes it would have been hugely challenging and also quite gutsy of those teachers who did teach him uh, chinese in those early years um so he's based in guangzhou and then does he start traveling elsewhere
1: well no it's not allowed but His first big breakthrough comes in uh, February 1809 because the East India Company realizes that he's already quite a gifted linguist so they hire him as their translator and This is very very advantageous to him because he has a good salary and he has a legal status He has the right to be in Guangzhou. He also has a right to be in in Macau and on the same day He marries um, Uh, his, his wife. So two very good things happened to him on that day.
0: And who's the wife?
1: She's the daughter of a officer in the Royal Irish Regiment whom he'd met in Macau called Mary Morton. Now for him this job is just the means. He takes the job to get the status, to get the money, but his main thinking, his main effort is not changed, which is to master Chinese, uh, and to begin to evangelize. So this is what he does on the weekends and in the evenings, but he does his j- his day job to retain his status.
0: So he now has a wife, as you say, from Macau, so at least she would have understood what it meant to be out in this area.
1: Yes, I think his personal life would have been much better after this. He was extremely um, diligent, so he made his first convert in 1814, And in 1815, he published his grammar of Chinese. I mean, that's an extraordinary...
0: So that's only, what, nine years? Yes,
1: and um, this grammar was mainly aimed at... Well, it was aimed at all foreigners, but, of course, the main market would be missionaries like him. So he, he saw his job as paving the way for hundreds, perhaps thousands, of missionaries to come after him. So this grammar was step one. So all the other missionaries that came after would not have his struggles, they could just buy his grammar and would be able to master Chinese much more easily. Then he produces a six volume dictionary of Chinese to further assist foreigners learning Chinese. And then in 1823, he produces the Bible in Chinese in 21 volumes.
0: Extraordinary.
1: I mean, we just can't imagine it. I mean, now we have computers, everything's much more convenient and quick but those days everything would be done by hand and, and the Bible is not an easy book to, to translate you're dealing with holy words but this is what he did.
0: And did he do it well have you ever seen any of those?
1: Well the scholastic opinion is that the translation was not of a very um, high quality because remember his Chinese at that time is not all that good but he he admits this himself. he said that the standard is not very high. I hope others will improve it, but we we have to make a start because if you're going to evangelize Chinese, the first thing you have to do is provide them with with the Bible. Now this book could not be printed in Macau; it couldn't be printed in in mainland China, so it was printed in Malacca, and he made small editions so people could carry it in their pockets. So they would not be easily discovered by Chinese officials. And this Bible really had an enormous impact on all the Chinese-speaking world. So this was the Bible that was used for the next decades in China, Taiwan, the Chinese diaspora, the Southeast Asia. So it was really a very important document.
0: What would the level of people's ability to read have been in those days, though?
1: Ah, you're quite right. Very limited. Only a small number of people would be able to read it, but of course you have to have it So they could read to others, of course. Yes, so so yes So then you give it to somebody and then he would read it to his family members his colleagues his uh, classmates And then the word would spread uh, In that way.
0: What's your view of Robert Morrison? Well he's um,
1: of course, quite a controversial figure. If you're looking at it from the Chinese aspect, you could say that he had no business coming. He knew in advance that what he was doing was illegal, both to learn Chinese and to evangelize. And the missionary legacy in China is a very complicated one. But if you look at it from, we can say, the Western perspective, or the Christian perspective, we have to say he was an extraordinary individual, a pioneer a man who endured enormous difficulties in his own life in the pursuit of what he considered a very noble and inspiring mission. And time would tend to accept the second version because as I say, now we have tens of millions of Chinese Protestants in in the mainland, in Hong Kong, Taiwan, um, overseas, and they are all the sons and daughters of of Robert Morrison. So from that aspect, we have to say he did a remarkable thing.
0: I'm talking with Mark O'Neill about the missionary Robert Morrison. Robert Morrison was born in 1782. He would go to China in 1807. He proceeded to get the Bible translated into Chinese and is seen as the father of the Protestant Church in China. You say as his life continues, I mean, he only arrives at 1807. He's only 20. He's had to go via America and then arrive in China at a time when, you know, people were, the British wanted trade and the Chinese definitely didn't want any Westerners taught Chinese and no Chinese taught any Christianity. So uh, his life was fairly dangerous then.
1: Yes, I would say he was not in danger of being killed, but he was certainly in danger of being beaten up, arrested, uh, expelled and his converts were indeed subject to imprisonment, uh, arrest, and books were burned, printing machines were, were destroyed because what he was doing was illegal.
0: How did the Qing dynasty regard Christianity? Was it that they were concerned about that somebody else would take over the belief systems of the people? Was it an issue that their power would be taken away? How was it seen?
1: Well, the emperor is an absolute monarch, right? And he's the son of heaven. That's the title given to him in Chinese. So he wants to control everything among his subjects, including what they believe and what they're taught. And that's why the missionaries are a bigger threat than the traders or business people, because their motive in coming to China is to make money, um, to sell goods, to buy Chinese goods, to make profit, and then they leave. So they don't represent any fatal threats. But to the emperor, an aggressive missionary religion, be it Islam or be it Christianity, was a potentially fatal threat. And as we saw with the Taiping rebellion, which happened soon afterwards, this threat nearly happened. So I think the emperor is quite logical to have this great fear of missionary religions because their aim is to evangelize the whole China and turn China into a Christian country and if they do That's the end of his dynasty.
0: Now, Robert Morrison was one of eight children. Does he ever return to Scotland or does he make his whole life in China?
1: Well, he only returned to the UK once 1824 1825 and he was then quite famous in the UK. He gave a copy of his Bible to the King King George the fourth he had 10,000 Chinese books, which he'd built up, and he donated these to University College London, where you can see them.
0: So these Chinese books were ones that he'd collected in China?
1: Yes, yes. And it, at that time, you remember, I think we can say there was no Chinese studies in, in the Western world. So this was absolutely precious collection for, for the university. He encouraged the establishment of language schools in the UK so missionaries could start learning before they went abroad. He was very much fated during this visit and then he goes back to Macau and Guangzhou and he never returns to the UK again.
0: So he's translated the Bible. He's also taken these tens of thousands of books back to the UK. But in terms of converts in those early days, I mean, what kind of numbers are we talking?
1: Well, this is a very good question. He converted less than a dozen people. So despite these extraordinary achievements that we've talked about, the conditions of evangelism and the risks for Chinese were so great that he only converted a small number of people. But one of them is a man called Liang Fa, who is a Cantonese, and he converted him. And he was the second person, second Chinese that Morrison converted. And Mr. Liang Fa becomes the first Chinese Protestant minister. And Liang Fa is quite similar in character to Morrison, which is to say he's extremely courageous, he doesn't take no for an answer, he doesn't mind all the restrictions put him uh, upon him by the government, and he's extremely active, He's, he's a great writer, he writes many, many tracts and he takes the tracts around Guangdong and he hands them out to people, he very aggressively seeks to spread the word and in Guangzhou there was an examination hall for the imperial exam so once a year people from all over South China came to sit the imperial exam and the most desirable job for a Chinese was to be in the civil service so this was a very good opportunity for him so I don't quite know how he got into the exam hall but he did and he left his tracts on all the tables so all the applicants would find one on the table so one of the people who was taking the exam is called Hong Xiuquan and he took this tract and he put it in his pocket and this man uh, failed in the exam so he was at home he was extremely disappointed at having failed and he takes the tract out of the pocket and he starts to read it and Mr. Hong has a kind of religious experience and comes to believe that he's the brother of Jesus This is not written on the tract. This is something that came up in his head. So he is the founder of the Taiping Rebellion, Mr. Hong. Now, we can't say that the tract alone or Mr. Morrison caused the Taiping Rebellion. Of course, we can't. Uh, The the Taiping Rebellion has many many reasons. But the fact that it has this semi-Christian, semi-messianic character, we can ascribe to Mr. Morrison and Mr. Liang's tract. And the Taiping Rebellion has many reformist elements, and some of them we can see from, from Christian theology.
0: Do we know what, what Robert Morrison's reaction was to the Taiping Rebellion?
1: Well, no, Mr. Morrison already had passed away. Um, he, was, he, he died in 1834. He was only 52.
0: And the Taiping Rebellion was?
1: Uh, it started afterwards. I mean, it started in a small way, and Mr. Hong was very successful in attracting followers. The, the Qing dynasty was corrupt, backward, ineffective. His reforms were very popular to remove the binding for women's feet, land reform, equality between men and women, promising a much more fairer society than that existed. And it was extremely successful. And he created a great army and the army defeated the Qing troops in many battles and they conquered a large part of China. And he set up another capital in Nanjing and he proclaimed himself the emperor. And the Western powers at that moment had a very big decision to make because militarily there wasn't very much between the Qing armies and the Taiping armies. They were quite evenly balanced. But the, the Western armies had the firepower. They could swing the balance. So they could choose who to back and the person they backed was likely to win. In other words, if they had backed the Taiping Rebellion and put their military at the service of the Taiping Rebellion, then the Qing Dynasty would probably have been overthrown and we would, ha- we would have the end of the Qing Dynasty and we would have the Taiping Dynasty and Mr. Hung would have become the Emperor. So some people in the West said this was the God-sent opportunity because if the Emperor of China becomes Christian, he will then decree that all the subjects of China become Christian too. So within one fell swoop, you evangelize the world's most populous country. This was a view among some people in the West. The, the orthodox churches in the West did not accept that view. They did not regard Mr. Hung as a proper Christian. They regarded his belief system as one he devised himself with Christian elements. And they certainly didn't believe he was the, the brother of Jesus. So they, they didn't accept that, but, but some people had that view.
0: And would he have been more open to trade?
1: Yes, of course, if the foreigners had helped him take power, then he would have owed it to them. Yes, and I think the foreigners would have had much more influence with the new dynasty and been able to exercise more power than they did, in fact.
0: So why did they decide to back the Qing dynasty instead and the Qing emperor?
1: Well, there's many reasons for this. One is the foreigner governments decided, let's, let's go with the devil we know. The Qing government is weak, it's corrupt. It's easy to manipulate, we can get out of it what we want. We know that, but if we back the Taiping rebellion and they take power, it's a you know, reformist, perhaps even revolutionary government. So we're not quite sure what the outcome's gonna be. We can't predict it. So if you're in business or you're in government, you always tend to take the, the safer option.
0: Yeah, the status quo, whatever that might be. In terms of the Taiping rebellion, it went on for years
1: yes so finally the 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 westerners the western governments backed the qing government and the qing armies uh, turned the tide they defeated them and then they finally attacked nanjing the capital and they took nanjing and it was one of the most bloody battles in history so finally the uh, rebellion was put down and the qing dynasty survived for another for another 50 years
0: returning to Robert Morrison who may have influenced the founder of the Taiping Rebellion. Robert Morrison died in 1834. He'd been born in 1782. Did he and his wife Mary have any children?
1: Yes, uh, they had I think four and one of them is quite famous. He became a very good linguist too and he helped the British as the translator in the wars exactly preceding the foundation of Hong Kong. Now Morrison's first wife died, and he married a second wife, and they had five children. As far as I know, they, they didn't have a, a significant role in, in China.
0: Oh, so Mary
1: died, his first wife? Yes, yes she died, yeah. So he he went, during his trip to the UK, which I mentioned, during that trip, he met another lady, and he he married her. But most of his work, most of his life, he was on his own. His children were not with him, so... His personal life must have been very difficult.
0: Any of these early pioneers, I think, have to be hugely self sufficient. Anybody who's an explorer, a missionary, um, a diplomat, a tradesperson, they, they have to be able to really function well by themselves.
1: And the additional handicap for the missionary is I think many f- foreigners in Hong Kong, China, Macau would not welcome them because they consider them troublemakers. They were interfering in Chinese affairs. They're making the, the business of dealing with the Chinese government more difficult. You know, our life would be much better if they weren't here. Not only that they were isolated from their own family members, but I think they were isolated from many of their own foreign community too, who, who didn't want them to be there
0: as well as being a missionary in the truest sense of the word in terms of spreading the word of God, was Robert Morrison also involved in education?
1: No, we we don't quite get to that stage because remember he's just building the foundation. So his work is translating, writing, he wrote over 40 books in English and Chinese, he's setting the ground for the missionaries to follow and I, I do want to mention that after he died then missionaries start to arrive in China in large numbers, and the most important one is called James Hudson Taylor, and he founded something called the China Inland Mission, 1865, and he lived in China for 51 years, and this uh, China Inland Mission had 800 missionaries, 125 schools, 18,000 converts, and it became the, the largest Protestant missionary agency in the world, and in the Boxer Rebellion, the boxers killed 58 of these missionaries and 21 of their children. So, we can say this China-Indian mission was a direct product of what Morrison had done. And he also put China on the map of the Western world. Before before Morrison came, I think nobody in Europe or America had had any cons- conception of China. I mean. All they knew was a big country with many people but they had, they had no idea of what happened here and thanks to his writings he, he put it on the map and then it, it then became possible for Hudson Taylor and the others to set up mission organizations and send people here.
0: How is Robert Morrison remembered today?
1: Well in Macau there is something called Morrison Chapel which is an Anglican church which was built in his memory and he is buried in the cemetery there together with his wife and his son. And his uh, tomb is a place of um, pilgrimage for Chinese Protestants. So every year many come and um, pay tribute to him as the father of the Chinese Protestant Church.
0: And how is he remembered in mainland China?
1: Well, of course, everything changed in '49. Um, The KMT government was favourable to missionaries. Um, Chiang Kai-shek was himself Protestant; his wife was a Protestant. But the communists, of course, had a different view. So when they
0: yes, they they had another little book to put in people's pockets.
1: (laughs) So in '49, they expelled all the foreign missionaries, and they set up one church for the Protestants, one for the Catholics, but under state control. And Hong Kong was an unintended beneficiary of this because the missionaries all moved here, or they went to Taiwan, and they set up in Hong Kong wonderful schools, hospitals, old people's homes, orphanages, all the things they'd done in the mainland. And we're now having a race for chief executive, And I think I can say all the candidates went to missionary schools. So I think the missionary schools have played an enormous role in the life of Hong Kong, enabling tens of thousands of people from very modest families to have a good education and go on to a career that their parents could never have
0: imagined. Author Mark O'Neill talking there on the Scottish missionary, Robert Morrison. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.